0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And this morning we are going to be looking at one of the parables that again teaches us a few more principles about stewardship. We're taking a break from 1 Timothy. And. just looking at some key texts on stewardship. Next week, John Richard will be preaching. I think he'll be preaching something on the death of Christ. The week after that is Easter Sunday. We will preach a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. But for this morning, we want to look at Luke chapter 12 and the parable of what is often called the parable of the rich fool. As we come to this text... We just want to summarize some of the principles that we've already learned in our series. We've learned that God owns everything, that everything we have is given to us by God. He is the one who has made everything and everything belongs to him. We also learned that God even gives us the power to make wealth. When you think about it, there is nothing you can do without God. He is the one who keeps you alive. He is the one who sustains you. And so you can't do anything without him. So he not only owns everything and we are stewards of what he has given us. He gives us the power to make wealth. We have also learned that we need to be thankful for all we have, whether it be a lot or a little. We need to constantly give thanks to God for he is worthy of our thanks. Fourth. We learned that by not being generous givers, we rob ourselves of a blessing. And fifth, by being generous givers, we we gain for ourselves a blessing, and God actually commands us to put Him into into the test in this area. We gain ourselves a blessing, and we increase opportunities for God to be glorified. These are some of the things we have learned so far. And as I said, when we, were going, when we started the series, that we were going to look at some key Old Testament texts, and we wanted to look at some negative aspects, some how not to do stewardship things. And that's what we are going to look at this morning, kind of a negative aspect of how not to be. When it comes to giving, when it comes to being generous and giving to others and the Lord what He has already given to us, There is one sin that stands in our way like an iron door that defies us to be generous. It is a secret sin. It is a sin of the heart, a sin from within, a sin that encourages us to keep what we have and to hoard what we have for ourselves, to rationalize that we need to save it all just for us and for our needs and our wants for the future. And you can probably think of what that sin is. It's the sin of greed or covetousness. And that is what we are going to look at this morning. Jesus, when asked in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, what the greatest commandment was, you remember what he said? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. He he wants us to love him completely. Not just partially. Then Jesus said, the second commandment is like it. He said, love your neighbors, yourself. Now, what's interesting is Jesus said, on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, that's a lot. That is a lot. Because you see, every commandment is really the commandment to love God. We love God in two ways. By loving him directly or by loving Him indirectly by loving other people. That is why when you look at the Ten Commandments, you see commands related, the first four related to directly how we would worship or love God by obeying Him in those first four ways. And then the other six commandments are how we love God by loving other people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols or worship any other graven image you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You are to keep the Sabbath holy. You are to honor your father and mother. You are to not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not lie. And the last one, not covet. Now that last command is one of the most comprehensive commands of the ten. It is a secretive sin, a A sin which lies within and it gives birth to many deeds outside, but it is an inside sin. Think about it. Think how covetousness encompasses all the other commandments. Why would you have anything else before God? Because... You covet what you might get for yourself by putting other things first. Why would you worship an idol? Because you covet what worshiping that idol might give you. Why would you use the Lord's name in vain? Because you covet having the freedom to say what you want. Why would you not keep the Sabbath? Because you covet Being able to work when you want to work. Why would you not honor your father and mother? Because you don't want anybody telling you what to do. You want the freedom to say what you want and do what you want when you want to do it. Why would you murder? Because you want to be vengeful. Because you want to be just and the justifier and the judge. Why would you commit adultery? Because you covet the pleasure of immorality. Why would you steal? Because you covet what you get from stealing. Covetousness is the overarching principle behind all those other sins. Why would you bear false witness? Because you think you covet what you think you will gain by lying and not telling the truth. Coveting is the fuel which causes all other sins to run against God. It's the devil's anthem. It's the demon's praise song. And it's the sin that is just infiltrates our lives and tempts us to do all sorts of wicked things. If you are having problems with being a wise steward, if you are having problems letting go of things, of being generous, of giving, you are being strangled by the coils of this sin. And you need to take some drastic measures in your life to lop off this serpent's head because it will squeeze the life right out of you. And this text will do it. This is the text. This text is a hammer. You know, sometimes when you come to a parable, parables are hard to understand, and sometimes you think, you know, I don't know what that's talking about. Not this one. This one goes for the heart, and it never misses. Now, before we look at the parable... I just want to give you a little context so you understand the situation. And I want to give you just a couple principles that will help you if you ever study parables on your own. First, let's talk about the context. Jesus, in Luke chapters 4 through 9, has been ministering in the area of Galilee. That's north of of, uh, Jerusalem, around the Sea of Galilee. And then in chapters 10 through 19 of Luke, Jesus is slowly coming down towards Jerusalem. He is in transit, so to speak, from the area of Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's teaching, he's preaching, he's doing miracles, he's healing the sick, he's doing all sorts of signs and wonders And preaching the kingdom. Now what's interesting is, is the people are very fascinated by this. Just like we would if someone did it here. You know, we have people who will go to the desert to see Jesus in the face of a tortilla that someone cooked up. Thousands of people migrated to some trailer park in the middle of New Mexico to see Jesus in the face of a tortilla. But Jesus was going around, he was healing people. And doing these miracles, and the crowds just started gathering. They were gathering, and they were thick. And they were treating Jesus kind of like a, you know, the freak show and the carnival. They just wanted to see him. And you know, maybe he'll do a miracle when we're watching. Or maybe he'll heal me. Or, or maybe he'll tell me something that I didn't know. And so they're gathering around. And look at Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Look at what Luke writes there. He says, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. It was like one of those rock concerts, you know, where people get trampled to death, trying to see the famous rock star so-and-so. The people are just gathering around. They're trying to step on each other. They're so packed tight because they want to get close to Jesus that they're just, they're literally stepping on each other. And then in verses 1 through 12, Jesus begins to warn the people against the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And he tells them to fear God and not men. He gives them a few other warnings and then that leads him to address an interruption he had in his teaching. I don't think he intended to teach on the parable the rich fool in this context, but a man actually interrupted him in the middle of his teaching. And it is that interruption that Jesus says, well, okay, since we're interrupted, we might as well switch channels for a little bit and I'll teach on that, something that relates to the interruption. And so that's what's happening and he gives this parable in response to this interruption. Now, the parable is, literally means to cast alongside. It is to cast a true-to-life story alongside a truth. So if you want to teach a truth, it is to create a story which so illustrates that truth that the truth becomes very clear. That's what a parable is. And whenever you study a parable, you use the same Bible study principles that you would use in any other text. But there's a couple ones that are very important. The first one is find the situation or the need that gave rise to the parable. This is really important. You always look in the preceding context and find out why Jesus gave the parable. He doesn't just give parables in vacuums. He gives them in response to a situation. And here, the situation is very clear. We'll look at it in just a minute. Then once you find the situation, then you can interpret the parable, and your interpretation should somehow match the situation or the need. Now, some parables are extremely hard to interpret. Some parables are interpreted by Jesus. Those ones are easy to understand. And this one here is not interpreted by Jesus, but there is literally no disagreement among commentators about what this parable means. It is so crystal clear. So from this parable, we are going to extract two main principles, a couple other ones, but two big ones. And so follow along. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 of Luke 12, and we're just going to look at the situation first, and then we'll look at the parable itself. Jesus says this, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man... Who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. This brings us to the first point. Be on guard against every form of greed. Now, did you see the problem which led to the parable? This is it. Now picture, picture this setting. Think of thousands of people gathered around, you know, 5, 10,000 people. I mean, when he fed the one multitude, there was 5,000 men plus women and children, you know, maybe 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. And they're all crowded around, mashed together, stepping on a way, trying to hear you. Now, if you were one of those people, and it was real quiet and everybody was listening. Would you raise your hand or just speak out and say, teacher, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Would you do that? You would have to be desperate. You'd have to be something. I don't know what. But, you know, that's brazen, isn't it? To just take your, your family problems and just your dirty laundry and just air it in front of the multitudes. Hey, tell my brother. I mean, Jesus is teaching here. The multitudes are there. He's been healing people, you know, and also just interrupt him. Hey, that is very strange. That is very strange. And it reveals a little bit of this man's heart, doesn't it? This man wants his inheritance. He wants it bad. Now, I have seen similar situations to this. You think, man, how could anybody do this? I have seen, I have dealt with many people, as a matter of fact, in this very same situation with inheritances. You have know, families which are just, they're just so kind and loving and everything's fine until mom and dad die. And then all of a sudden, okay, listen, I've visited mom three more times than you did. You know, I, I think I should get 60%. Well, no, sir, because I think you cheated. I think you spent some of the money. I think you went to McDonald's. You know, you you, you, you took money you shouldn't have. And now all of a sudden they both have lawyers. They're spending thousands of dollars fighting over the inheritance so they can have it. They want their share of the inheritance. I've seen it over and over again. That's why it's so important to have a will. And then you just say who you wanted to go to and then it's over. And this is the same kind of thing that's happening in this text. Now, we don't know because the text doesn't say whether the guy deserved the inheritance or not. We don't know if he, his brother was wrongfully uh, withholding what was due his brother or whether his brother was just this scoundrel and had squandered already his inheritance and that he just wanted more. We don't know what, but it really doesn't matter. And notice what Jesus says in verse 14. Jesus says, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Notice what is happening here. The man is trying to use the peer pressure of the crowd and Jesus to manipulate his brother to get what he wants. Very shrewd. Very evil. that Well, you know, if I... If I make this statement, everybody will look at my brother and go, Are you withholding the inheritance? You know, you got 15,000 people. Go, Give it to him. Give it to him. You know, maybe you could even get Jesus to pronounce some sort of judgment. But Jesus says, Listen, nobody's appointed me judge. Nobody's set me up as judge. I'm not the guy for you. I like how one commentator said Jesus came to bring men to God, not to bring property to men. And that's true. But Jesus did come to teach, and seeing this man's interruption, he thought, you know, this is a good opportunity. This is a good opportunity to address something that obviously this guy has, and that's a bad case of greed, a bad case of covetousness. And it is then in verse 15 that we learn the first important principle. Jesus says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed every form, every shape, every size. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I like how Bishop Hugh Latimer, Hugh Latimer was one of the reformers who was burned at the stake with Nicholas, Bishop Nicholas Ridley, because both of them believed in the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. And so the Catholic church burnt them at the stake during the reformation. And, uh, when Hugh Latimer preached on this text, this is how he started his sermon. Three statements and a question. It's very excellent. He says this Be on guard against every form of greed. Be on guard against every form of greed. Be on guard against every form of greed. And what if I should say nothing more? That's it. Sermon's over. You can dismiss. No. That's what the whole thing is. It is so crystal clear as you read this parable. It's just be on guard against every form of greed. Game over. It just makes you think, okay, why does Jesus say this? There's actually two consecutive commands at the beginning here. The first one is beware. It's a present active imperative command, which means always be in the process of examining your heart. Because remember, covetousness comes from where? Inside. So you always have to examine yourself and ask yourself, okay, am I being stingy here? Am I hoarding? Am I being covetous? Am I being greedy? Always be examining your house. Beware that this sin is present, that it's big, that it's pervasive, and always beware of it. The second command is be on guard. This is what they call a present middle imperative, which means the the one who is supposed to be doing it participates in the action. You cause yourself... To be on guard against. And it's the same term, this be on guard, is to defend yourself against an enemy. Put up your defenses against this enemy. What is the enemy? Greed. The same word is translated covetousness in other places in the New Testament. The two are one and the same. Why? Because greed is idolatry. Listen to what Colossians Three, verse five says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why is that? Because whenever you begin to worship things and live for things to accumulate things and trust in things, those things become your God. It's idolatry. When Paul gave the big list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, guess which one he lists right in there among all those other sins that we think of big sins. Now, as I read them, again, notice which ones are external and which one is internal. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. There it is, that one internal sin, that one internal sin among all those other ones. He says, don't be deceived. This is a bad sin. It characterizes those who are not getting into heaven. Now, in our society, there's never been a more relevant warning than the warning of this passage, especially in America. Have you ever thought of the reason for commercials? And if there are advertising people here, just sleep down in your pew. Um, (laughs) Have you ever thought of the reason for Commercials? The very reason for commercials is to build in you coveting, to make you think you need something you didn't even know existed before. You, need, you know, I need one of those—that widget or gadget or thingamajig—and you know. And then they put all the sound bites and all the music and crank up the volume on it. It's like, wow, I really need one of those. You ever discuss that with your children? Why every Sunday there's that big gob of ads? Do you think they spend all that money for those ads because they don't work? Have you ever wondered why when you go into a big department store that the first thing you encounter is the perfume and music and nice lights and big displays? Do you know why that is? That's not an accident. They have done research million dollar billion dollar research to find out exactly what kind of music makes what kind of person buy whatever. You know, if you're young, you go into the youth section, they have, you know, MTV and, you know, the youth culture music on there, so you'll get bebop around and just, you know, shop yourself to death. <laughs> you know, you go into, you know, one of those little knick-knack shops with all the wall weeds and all those little gadgets. You know, and then they have, you know, nice classical music and just makes you want to just stroll through there and just grab one of everything. <laughs> That's a science. It's an art. We don't have a TV, and so we aren't bombarded by all the stuff that comes on. And, and you know, whenever you're watching TV, you're thinking, I've, I've seen this commercial too many times. Um, you know, you hit the mute or whatever. And I remember, uh, this it really amazed me because you know when I was growing up, you know I saw the commercials and I wanted everything that was on the commercials and in a couple of Christmases ago, somebody got us a, um, my kids some gift certificates to a big toy store, and we thought, oh great you know and we took Leah and Mark down there, and you know they milled around and found something. Well, I went with Nate later because I think he was sick or something. And so Nate and I go down there by ourselves, and we're going to this huge toy store, and we're walking around and we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking. We, we, we went through every single aisle. And Dad said, or, or Nate says, "Dad, there's nothing here I want." I said, "Really? I saw some things I wanted." <laughs> Nothing you want. You see, when he looked up at all those bright-colored packages with all those cheap plastic toys in them, all he saw was bright-colored packages with cheap plastic toys in them. And so we went and bought some tools. (laughs) Lifetime guarantee, something that would, you know, last a long time. But he had never been bombarded, and so he had never, he had never that craving to have something was just not in him. We had to go back, I think, two more times before he finally settled on something. It's like, hey, bud, this is, you know, this is for the store here, you know. I mean, come on. You got to get something here, you know. And he's wandering around. (laughs) When I was that age, I would have had one of everything. But you see how, how covetousness begins from within, but then it, it, it uh, manifests itself in what we do on the outside. Now look again at verse 15. Jesus not only gives the commands to be on guard, beware and be on guard against greed. He gives the moral reason for the command. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. This is the problem which the parable of the rich fool addresses. The problem of greed, the problem of the false premise that you are what you have materially. That, you know, if you're rich, you are somebody, and if you are poor, you're not, which is a lie. There are very many rich people who, like Jesus said, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's impossible. But with God, he says he can make it happen. But it's like trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. Not easy. I've never tried, but I imagine it would be hard. So Jesus gives this parable. That's the situation. The guy stands up, you know, give me my inheritance. Jesus says, who? Who made you know, me judge over you? And then he says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. And he gives the moral reason. For your life does not consist in the possessions you have. Then he gives the parable, and let's read it. Follow along as I read verses 16 through 21. Jesus says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of the rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now did you notice anything in this parable? Did you notice anything maybe about this man's character? Little indicator words that might tell us what this guy's like. Well, look, look again at verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, and he goes on from there. Did you see at that time? Eight eyes and four mys, including one reasoning to yourself and one speaking to one's own soul. I mean, it's only six verses long. And the whole parable is saturated with me, myself, and I. There is no mention of other people. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of giving. There's no mention of generosity. It's all about me and my... This guy is a black hole, and everything around him is just sucking in. And he wants to just keep it all. And he doesn't want to give anything away. It reminds me of Nabal. You remember the story of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25? Nabal was the guy who was a rich man. He had some land that was very productive. And guess what his name was, meant, fool. And David is running around trying to hide from Saul. He's got his little army with him, and they're really hungry. And Nabal has an abundance, just like the man in this parable. And Nabal is is approached by David who says, hey you know, we're hungry, I'm, I'm the new anointed king, I need you to, you know, give me some, some food for me and my men and my army and we'd really appreciate it. And listen to what Nabal said to him. This is in 1 Samuel twenty five eleven. He said, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Sound familiar? David went away and his army was going to come back and totally annihilate Nabal and take everything he had. And if it wasn't for Abigail, the godly woman who came out and said, my husband is a fool, just as his name says, and here, you take all the stuff. She fell on her face and beseeched David. And so she saved her foolish husband's life. He was so selfish and so greedy Ten days later, the Lord struck him dead. Look at verse 17. Or verse 16, rather. Jesus begins to paint the picture of this guy. And notice, it says, it says, it was the land of a rich man, and it was very productive. The guy doesn't just have land. He doesn't just have productive land. He has very productive land. That's important to remember. This man is just getting by just fine. He's got prime land. It's producing lots for him. He just, he has an abundance. He has incredible opportunities to give glory to God by being generous. But look at verse 17. The man considers and thinks about the reasons and reasons to himself saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops, I know I'm going to give more to God. I'm going to give some to the lepers. I'm going to reach out to the poor. I'm going to bless other people. No. No. You know, in America, we have an abundance. And it's the normal mindset of the American to leverage up. get Getting more, collect more, collect more, collect more. You know, you... You're, you're, you have two kids and you know, you're in this apartment and you're barely scraping by. Then you get your third kid and you finally you know, barely afford this house and you can barely make your payments. And you're making the payments on that house and it's a two-bedroom and you've got your three kids. And then you have another kid and then you're still dealing with your two-bedroom house. And then finally the kids slowly grow up and, and finally leave the house and all of a sudden you've got extra money. So you buy this huge house that you don't need anymore and you realize, man, we don't have enough furniture. We better fill it up. So then you get the big TV and the big furniture and you load up your house with stuff. And then pretty soon, man, our house is full. We're going to have to rent a storage facility. (laughs) Don't raise your hand if you have one. So you fill up your garages. You fill up your storage facility. I remember one of the things that always made me laugh is, you know, when I lived in one of those little tiny houses, I used to drive by the big houses with the triple car garages and kind of scoff at them because all the people who owned those houses all parked in the driveway. They couldn't fit their rigs in the garage. And I told Lisa, I never want a house with a three-car garage. And then the next house we bought, three-car garage. And I told her, I'm going to make sure we park in that thing. And we did. And it was not because we didn't have the stuff. It's just I was a good packer. But you know, you think about it, you get your house, you fill it full of stuff, it gets so cluttered that you start filling up your garage, it gets so cluttered, you get the storage, and I know what you're thinking, you go, Jack, you're meddling here. I know I'm meddling, I'm meddling on purpose. This guy was focused on himself, it's exactly what this guy's doing, isn't it? More, 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 more. He's just saving up, for saving up's sake. No, I'm not... I'm not trying to tell you here, don't think I'm trying to tell you, and I'm telling you I'm not trying to tell you, that having things is bad. It's not bad to have things. God gives us all the things we have. Every single thing we have is from God. It all comes from His hand. So how could you say it was bad? It's not. Some of the godliest people in all the Bible were very rich. It's okay to have an abundance of things as long as you 're a good steward of them, as long as you have the proper attitude of them, as long as you use them for the glory of God, look at verse eighteen. Here Jesus really begins to lay the pain on the canvas. The picture of this man is really taking shape. He says this: "What shall I do? The man 's reasoning to himself. No, I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones there 's the solution. He says, and there I will store all of my grains and my goods. That's that's the solution. Now, the man already has barns and they were already full, but he wanted bigger ones so he could store even more. And don't be confused here. The guy doesn't have a storage problem, he's storing just fine. He's storing too fine. He's taking everything he has for himself. His problem was greed. He was hoarding God's blessings. Now, the scriptures do teach about saving. Some of you are thinking, well, should I get rid of my savings? No. Not necessarily. You're supposed to save. The scriptures teach about saving. And the wisdom, for instance, in, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, it talks about the ant who works hard in the summer and the harvest and stores up for you know, the lean months of, of winter. That's great. It's good to save. It's good to not be a burden, you know, to your family or kids or whatever. That's good. That's good. But don't think that saving should be the goal of life. Don't ever think that I will save, therefore I will spend later. You don't even know how long you're going to live. You may die today or tomorrow or next week. You don't know. I've done funerals for all ages of people who didn't know that they were going to die, from babies on up. People who one day thought they were fine. People who were perfectly healthy. Until some accident or something happened and took them away. Now in verse 18 alone, there are three eyes and three minds. That's a lot. Then Jesus paints paints the finishing touch on this Fool's portrait in verse 19. Look at what verse 19 says. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. The man is a black hole. I mean, all he thinks about is his self. And do you notice he speaks to his own soul, his own psuche. The Greek word is psuche. The word we get psychology from. It means study of the soul. And just so you know, it doesn't mean the distribution of drugs. It's a study of the soul. And this guy is saying to his own soul, which represents your entire being. Oh, being. Oh, my being. Do we really own our soul? Who gives us our soul? Who does with our soul what it's done with once we die? God. Just like everything we have is from God, that includes our soul. It's His soul that He has given us. The man obviously thinks he's in control. He's a master of his own soul. But God is the one who controls our soul, not us. Now, look at verse 19. It exposes this rich man's presumption because he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Really? How do you know how long you're going to live? You don't know how long you're going to live. I mean, a guy's scrimps and saves and is stingy and hoarding all of his life, you know, Invests and reads all the money magazines and denies himself of everything but, you know, lettuce and whatever, salary. And he's thinking to himself, when I get to be 65, I'm going to retire. And then on his retirement party, he drops dead of a heart attack. Now what? He waited too long to do anything that was good with his money. He scrimped and scrimped and scrimped and scrimped. I mean, if my kids are grown up and I die, I want to die and have one penny left. That's all. I don't want to leave a bunch behind. I like what Solomon said. Listen to this in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. Thus I hated all the fruit of my later. Now Solomon is the richest man You know, who just about ever lived ever. I don't know if comparative is richer than Bill Gates, but he's rich. He says, Thus I hated the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruits of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. I mean, think about it. You scrimp, you save, you study, you, you know, go to Harvard, you make lots and lots and lots of money and die and leave it to a fool. Who spends it on things you don't want to spend on. Who lives a lifestyle you don't want him to live. He, when you die, someone else gets your goods. And that's why wills are so important. So you can tell people where you want your goods to go and you can you know, speak even though you're dead. God says, selfish, greedy people who are not generous with what he has given them are ignorant fools. That's God's name for the guy here, isn't it? Look at verse 20. This is God's title. You fool for this guy. Because he was covetous. He was greedy. He was living for the temporary. He was living as if his possessions were all that there were in life. And this What's interesting is the problem that he addresses in verse 15 when he says, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed is addressed right here. You fool. Now, who will own what you have prepared? The answer is he doesn't know. It doesn't matter, but it won't be you. God speaks to you loud and clear in this parable and he's saying, Beware, be on guard against every form of greed. And don't be fooled into thinking that your life consists of your possessions. It does not and this is a great parable because here's the guy, he's working his life, he's storing all the stuff up and he can just see himself in his motor home, you know, cruising down the road with all this money, you know, just going to the best events all around the world and flying from here to there and vacationing and just everything for him and then he dies and leaves it all to a fool. That very night, his life was required of him. Now, it's okay to have the motorhome. The issue here is not money The issue here is not how much money you have. The issue here is what you are doing with the wealth that you do have. You can have all the luxuries of the world and still be rich towards God. I'm not saying we should all take a vow of poverty. You may be thinking, well, what does it mean, though, to be rich towards God? I mean, what does that mean? It means using your resources for the glory of God. It means thinking all the time about how you can use what you have to bless other people and to bring glory to God. That's all. I like what J.C. Ryle stated when he he asked and answered this same exact question. He said, quote, when, it, when can it be said of a person that he is rich towards God? Never until he is rich in grace and rich in faith and rich in good works. Never until he has gone to Jesus Christ and bought from Him gold that is tested with fire, never until he has a house not made with hands and an eternal house in the heavens. Such a person is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His inheritance does not disappear. Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already and best of all, what he has now is nothing compared to what he will have hereafter. I love that. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 2, nine. Things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. That is, you can't even sit around with a group of other super smart people and even imagine the glory that is to come. You can't imagine it. It's beyond imagination. No one can have enter into their hearts the glory and the goods that God will give to the saints for all eternity. That is the proper perspective. And so the two truths we learn from this passage are these. Beware and be on guard. Always be looking and always keep defenses up against every single form of greed. The second principle we learn from here is be rich toward God. Whether you have a little, whether you have a lot, make sure you are generous and you give. Lenski, a commentator, said this, The parable of the rich fool is a painting painted by the master painter. At the bottom of the painting, Jesus now signs the man's name. Look closely to see if it is perhaps your name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it confronts us. That, Father, it calls us into account. Father, it is a blessing. It is also a responsibility. And, Father, I ask that each person here would look at their life and right now be aware and be on guard against every form of greed. That we would look and ask ourselves, are we being rich towards God? Are we using our resources, our houses, our things, our monies, our talents, our skills, whatever they be, for your glory to bless other people? Are we hoarding them all for ourselves? Father, I pray that you would help Calvary Bible Church be a church that exalts you in this area. That, Father, all of us would learn important lessons about being wise stewards. Father, we ask you to make us conform to the image of your son. That Father, we would be obedient to your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.